and welcome to Conversations on Climate. My name is Chris Caldwell and this series is produced by United Renewables in collaboration with the London Business School Alumni Energy Club. We sit down with the experts who are trying to solve the biggest challenge of our time before time runs out. Today we're speaking to a rising star on the LBS faculty on the subjects of transparency and regulation, major sources of corporate scandal and political tensions which are crucial in the fight against global heating. Marcel Aubert is Assistant Professor of Accounting here at LBS and has made his name through research on ESG and private equity, global taxation frameworks and carbon taxes. We covered a lot of ground including what research shows business leaders on the value of transparency, why private equity have been embracing ESG and whether it is genuine and profitable the issues around a global carbon tax and whether global green competition can compensate for a lack of global cooperation. This is a deep dive into areas of vital importance if we're to solve the climate crisis and it was a conversation that you just won't want to miss. Around 80% of people who listen to this podcast haven't hit the follow button. If I could ask you for a small favour, if you do enjoy our conversations, please do hit that follow button on your app. It would help us in the show more than I could possibly say. Thank you and enjoy the conversation. Marcel, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to speak to us today. Um, really, really looking forward to getting tucked into this like fascinating subject. We're going to be talking about transparency, disclosure, uh, taxation, regulation, areas that might seem dry <laughs> to, 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 to outside uh, observers, but actually are far from it. It's a source of like massive amounts of political conflict, uh, corporate drama. It's, it's really, it is actually fascinating stuff, but more importantly, it is absolutely key. Uh, all of these areas are absolutely key towards driving like the energy transition and, uh, and combating the climate emergency. Could you tell us briefly, like what brought you into this area? Why, why were you attracted to, uh, to, to this whole kind of disclosure, transparency, regulation, taxation? First of all, thanks so much, Chris and team, for, for bringing me onto your podcast. What an excellent platform to discuss today's most pressing issues uh, in terms of both societal, political and, and uh, economic challenges we face. To your introductory question, and thanks for motivating the importance of these topics, despite being dry, so I don't have to do that. I, I fully agree. Well. I almost have an obvious personal uh, story. So both my parents work in tax. So I was exposed to tax talk and regulatory talk uh, in my early childhood uh, already. So my mom is a loyal uh, civil servant at the German tax authorities. And my dad is a tax advisor, a little bit on the other side, but that's it. And then I never wanted to do tax because of that. But while at business school, um, I realized early on um, that taxation and corporate regulations uh, in more generally, are kind of key drivers of uh, corporate decision-making. Right? Managers respond to the incentive stemming from um, tax rules and, and, and regulations, and that's a way to change corporate behavior. So I thought, well, there is a huge opportunity to study these uh, topics and um, understand how businesses run, but also understand how regulators or societies can change uh, how business uh, is being run. And I think that's also at LBS what we're all interested in. You are the youngest we have um, had, had on the podcast, and your achievements to date have been really, really remarkable um, to get so far, you know, so, so fast. Um, but what I'm really interested in knowing is uh, your peers, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the people, the people who've come through uh, at, the, at the same time as you, who are now, now going to be the, you know, the, the current faculty and the, you know, the leaders of, of depart departments of the future. How do you see and your peers see um, ESG and climate, uh, maybe as compared to the, to the generation that, um, that are, are currently? ahead of these teams. Yeah, I mean, thanks again for having me despite my young age and, and happy to pro provide my 
perspective as a, as a scholar in, in his early 30s, um, to be uh, totally transparent. With respect to my cohort, I think one obvious characteristic is basically then when we started to study right, at school, at universities, and basically becoming grown-ups, this was all after the global financial crisis. And I think this was a pivotal moment when people and society started to reconsider the, the value proposition of multinational businesses, banks in particular, obviously. Um, so when I started university and had my first class in finance, accounting, or even one-on-one economics, topics about sustainable versus unsustainable investment, corporate behavior, accounting frauds, disclosures, aggressive tax avoidance were already on the map, on the agenda. So professors started to talk about this. And when you're exposed to this in your first semester as a student, this obviously becomes more prevalent, more, more relevant um, to you. And then uh, more particular, we, or my cohort, we are in the early phase of our career. And um, all these topics we're, to we're talking about today, they have been with us since the start of the career. Just Think about um, climate disasters, um, extreme uh, events, uh, but also more the, the S part uh, of ESG or G part of, of ESG, discrimination at work, how we think about uh, minorities and, and equity. Um, for us, these are everyday uh, topics, and maybe that's why we consider them as kind of uh, more obvious and not as niche topics that can be st studied in isolation, but I think something specific about my core is we, we embrace these uh, topics and think of them as as general questions that we can touch upon while focusing on, on our niche, our expertise, which for me is taxation and regulation. And then I'll try to uh, relate to these topics when, when drawing the implications um, of my research. That said, I think uh, we should not view my cohort or a younger cohort and the more senior colleagues as, as two separate groups. Not everything is black-white, obviously. I think we can deliver the best solutions, uh, both in academia, but also as, as, as future leaders, and that's relevant to, to our students, uh, when we obviously work, to, work together and, and share um, experiences. Uh, just a personal story, um, and I think young academics, young scholars can learn so much from the more senior cohorts. Uh, I talk a lot to my, um, my PhD supervisor, Christoph Spengel, who focuses on, on um, tax policy at the University of Mannheim. And during our conversation, I always very often learn that many of today's problems, perceived problems in terms of uh, taxation, and even the suggested uh, solutions, just think about global tax reform, are not new. People have been talking about them. It's just that we have more momentum in society and more willingness among regulators to do something. I think that's great. That's a great opportunity to study these topics and fully embrace them. Today. Okay. And why do you think that is? Why do you think there's more, um, it's broken through in society? Because obviously, like just taking the taxation example, it is not a new issue that uh, that you know, multinational corporations have been trying to 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 uh, it's something we'll talk about more more detail later have been trying to minimize their tax bills by having really complicated structures. I was conscious of it in the '90s, um, but it's only recently that that we've been tackling this particular particular issue. Um, now, without wanting to get dig into the weeds of that particular point, um, why do you think that um, we're as a society we're more open to making that type of that type of change now? Probably there's just uh, more awareness, and again, I think the global financial crisis was was uh, pivotal, was a very uh, very important uh, event because that's when um, government finances became more under pressure, 
and we bailed out big companies, big multinationals, big banks. Uh, and then I think we had the two sides of the coin, right? To, to have a sustainable financial system and sustainable government finances, we need to raise tax revenues on the other hand. To have the means to support companies during crisis, to provide basic infrastructures. And uh, probably that's when people became more, more critical and became probably more obvious to also look at the tax paying aspect um, of, of the corporate sector. Mm, okay. And of course, um, since the global financial crisis, we've learned all of our lessons and we'll never have to bail out another bank again. Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it hasn't worked out so well, has it? Yeah. I mean, uh, probably we could have a big debate about how much regulation and, and government intervention uh, do we need. There are market failures, there are externalities of, of corporate behavior. That's probably why we, why we need governments, why we need regulation. and. Even if we only need a little bit of government and regulation, we need public finances. Mm -hmm. and, and taxes are one way to, to raise um, um, revenues for, for government, to have the means. But also, and we will come back to this topic quite often today, I think, one way to drive and change corporate behavior in an intended way with, with some intentions uh, in mind. And energy transition uh, could be one of them. So uh, to begin with, uh, would you mind outlining the um current uh, state of the disclosure regime, uh, particularly in uh, with the SEC in the US and uh, the European Union here in Europe? Yeah, I mean, there's a big difference in terms of corporate disclosure mandates between the US and Europe. In the US, only publicly listed firms, generally speaking, have to disclose financial information on an annual or quarterly basis, whereas in Europe, also private companies have to do that, above a certain size threshold, um, usually something like 5 to 10 million in, in total assets revenues, which means that if I want to understand how, let's say, the British uh, sportswear apparel startup Gymshark is doing, I can just look that up. I can see that um, they made 350 million uh, in, um, British pounds in, in revenues last year, had an operating margin of 3.7%. Uh, Quite interesting, I can find that out. If you want to find out the same information about the US firm Patagonia, good luck with that. So the question is, um, do we want as a public this uh, type of information? Because for the firms, it can obviously also be costly to disclose this information. Because you're disclosing this information, as you said, might be proprietary uh, to competitors um, as well. The key idea about financial disclosures is typically to help investors understand and um, help um, capital markets become efficient uh, because we want capital to be allocated to the most efficient uh, economic resources and investors like information to assess whether a certain firm um, is run in an efficient manner generating returns. Nowadays obviously we're also interested in many other forms of uh, disclosures and information. I think today's topic is climate change uh, and ESG and, and here also we have we have a huge debate do we want to mandate um, this information and I think the key uh, idea here maybe the philosophical argument is that we can use transparency and um, disclosure regulation to potentially let market forces right shape our corporate behavior in a way um, that is hard to achieve with specific uh, rules. Specific rules to uh, make firms behave in a certain way, invest in certain technologies, pollute less, um, promote um, diversity, equity and inclusion. If you just disclose how firms are doing uh, in, in these dimensions, market forces, for example, consumers, investors, employees uh, and the like um, can have their say and maybe managers respond to these market forces. I understand. But even with that, there are problems. Like, for example, just taking the um, the, the, the 
um, EAT of ESG does tend to be wrapped up in one molecule, which is carbon, yes. as opposed to all of the other things. So you, if you find, um, if you just, just say to firms, okay, for, for your ESG uh, reporting under E, tell us how much carbon you have, how do you go about kind of constructing a disclosure regime that has the right framework, but also the right uh, restrictions so that uh, it's, it's, you can't just wiggle out of it, uh, but it has enough freedom that it captures the essence of what you need, what needs to be captured? Yeah, I mean, obviously, that's an extremely complex and broad question. Uh, and to be fair, don't feel really um, kind of experienced enough to, to answer that question. Because it is so complex, we don't even know how much to regulate in terms of financial information, what is optimal, right? Uh, and in terms of financial information, public versus private firms, there's actually um, a nice piece coming out of the Chicago Booth Review, the summer uh, edition, the cover story will be exactly on that topic. Should we mandate more financial disclosures in, uh, disclosures in general in the US also for, for private firms? But back to um, climate change and e-disclosures. Uh, Again, extremely complex, and that's why we need to find an, an optimum and a trade-off um, between having a set of information that um, the addressees, the users of, of, of the statements can also digest and act on, including regulators, uh, and still having meaningful information, not forgetting uh, about too much. And if we think about this trade-off, we could say, well, you're, you're totally right. I mean, CO2 is one, one metric. There might be many other things, but these many other things are potentially correlated to a high degree with um, CO2. So maybe in the first step, we can have a simple disclosure rule and saying report scope one CO2 emission consistently uh, across firms, and that's currently uh, what leading researchers uh, in, in, in the field recommend. Um, there's a nice piece I recommend for, for audience um, by a couple of uh, European and, and US uh, scholars called Mandatory, Carbon, uh, Mandatory uh, Corporate Carbon Disclosures and the Path to Net Zero, suggesting uh, exactly the solution, both for uh, simplicity uh, reasons, but still um, having meaningful disclosures. Okay, and that's just scope one. It's just scope one. You miss quite a lot. It misses, it misses a lot. The benefit here of um, mandating only scope one uh, disclosures is obviously not having double counting issues. Right? Yeah. If, sure. if you make all uh, corporate entities in the world report scope one emissions, we'll probably fix the problem already because then we have the entirety of information. So again, it's also probably the idea is to, to avoid uh, complexity as well. Um, and I guess the next question is, why should firms bother? Uh, which I know you've, you've written a, a paper on this, uh, about the impact of increasing disclosure by private firms mm -hmm. um, on, particularly on, kind of on capital. What does, uh, what, what does the research kind of imply? Yes, um, I mean, here, here we come from exactly the starting point, that um, the transparency landscape is so different between public firms and, and public markets in most countries around the world, in the US it's the extreme obviously, and, and private companies. And we are wondering, global investors might be interested in investing in these private firms as well. But what investors do not like is uncertainty, in particular if they cannot find investment opportunities. So then we have been, we, we were looking at this uh, increasing trend in um, additional transparency coming out for private firms at the aggregate industry level in every country. And we're simply asking the questions if private companies in industries within a given country become more transparent at the aggregate level, if there's more financial information about private firms, do global investors respond and reallocate their capital from public markets in the same industry, in the same country, to these private markets? And our results suggest that this is the case. 
And the implication here is, maybe that makes sense to our listeners, if we have $100 uh, dollars in, in global capital available, and currently it's tilted toward public firms, and we still have $100 um, uh, dollars in total capital, now private firms become more transparent, and we know more about potential investment opportunities, some of that might be shifted to private firms. We don't take a stance on whether that's a good thing, whether the private firms do better than the public ones, but investors do respond to this additional information. So the um, key implications here for managers and firms are not new, which just provides some um, additional evidence or literature, not new, but if you want to raise capital as a firm, it's typically a good idea to disclose more uh, information um, to uh, investors. I understand. Um, and that's also, there's also other arguments against um, um, over-regulation. Like, for example, you, you wrote a, a paper looking at um, your European Union's efforts of trying to um, stop the localization of, of, of particular, particular taxation. Um, VAT in Luxembourg was uh, the, the example I was thinking of. What are the unintended consequences then of, of over-regulation? Of, sorry, not even over-regulation, but of, of well-intended regulation? Yeah, of, I think you're referring to uh, additional uh, mandatory disclosures. Here in a specific um, institutional setting, disclosures that are directed to one specific stakeholder or regulator. So we're talking about additional tax disclosures to tax authorities uh, worldwide. So, this, um, so we're tapping into a specific field, I would say. It's not uh, about the public market and investors globally that might benefit from additional source of information, but regulators being able to act on more information. Yeah. Uh, because the problem was, uh, or the perceived problem was, companies are a bit opaque, operating through tax havens, companies are multinational by definition, so the tax structures involve a lot of entities and business operations around the world, but the tax systems, tax return filings, are very domestic. So tax authorities might not have the full picture here. And the idea was to provide domestic tax authorities with this full picture, so companies had since 2016, if you were operating in the European Union, to disclose the full picture of global operations to any domestic uh, tax authority. And the idea was to bring them closer to tax payments in each of these jurisdictions um, that we would like to see. If companies generate revenues and have a lot of operations in a given country, we want them to pay more taxes in these countries. That was the idea. Our results suggested that not much happened in terms of overall tax payments. It's not necessarily the case that companies paid a lot of more taxes. By the way, we are contributing here to work by other scholars, Pratika Yoshi, Felix Hogger, finding very modest uh, effects in additional tax payments. What we find is that companies responded by changing real operations, allocating more investment, physical investment and employees, to what we thought of tax-favorable uh, jurisdictions in Europe, to Luxembourg, to the Netherlands, to Ireland. And probably this was uh, surprising, or the findings of our results surprising to regulators in high-tax countries like Germany or France, um, because it appears that companies wanted to substantiate the fact that they are being taxed in, in Ireland, in Luxembourg, and in Germany by shifting uh, more operations there. Probably not the necessarily uh, intended consequence by regulators. So our, our next topic of conversation is uh, transparency, ESG, and private equity. Uh, the whole uh, private equity world is not particularly well known for its um, transparency, and it's not and it's quite well known for its um, kind of short-termist views of the world, where it tries to, um, you know, have have again complicated tax structures to minimise that bill. 
Now, this doesn't seem like a natural fit for um, for for ESG and sustain sustainability. Uh, but you would argue against that point. Exactly because the private equity industry is not known for transparency with that, we thought that's an interesting area to look at in, in terms of research. Also driven a lot by our conversations with private equity managers and investors here at London Business School. Just from an anecdotal point of view, you talk to these people today and they do say ESG is now part of our uh, value creation. Um, we can talk about the specific uh, motivations and reasons behind that, but I think it's a matter of fact, and I think um, private equity and the industry is sometimes put um, in a little bit of a um, black and white, let's say, uh, a discussion, focusing on, on, on short-run returns, um, asset stripping, reducing taxes, uh, um, high leverage, and so on, so it doesn't have the, the best image. But um, I think, ESG and value creation has um, huge opportunities in, in the private equity industry. Why is that the case? Because private equity firms and investors typically become majority shareholders of portfolio companies they invest in. So ha they have the mandate and the means to drive change in portfolio companies. And I think that's uh, uh, what um, what the industry is also saying today when they uh, talk ESG, they can say we are being serious because we can uh, drive change. I think that's a key difference between private equity investors and other institutional uh, investors, um, for example, mutual funds that typically only hold uh, small shares uh, of companies. So that um, in, in the first place. Then second, we looked at this empirically. Did the ESG focus of private equity firms change in the last 20 years? And um, based on our methodology, by looking at their website disclosures, uh, we do find that this is the case. It increased um, dramatically. Well, now you can say this is only a time trend. The whole world is now looking more uh, at ESG disclosure, disclosures. That might be true, but then we look at the drivers of this, and I think you have questions on that later uh, as well. And also we try to tie this a little bit to the actions and financial outcomes of private equity investments. And without going into um, too much detail, um, we it's hard to pin down causal effects, uh, obviously, here. Uh, but we uh, do find that those private equity firms that talk increasingly more about an ESG focus also focus more on portfolio companies, acquiring portfolio companies in the first place that are more sustainable. And it seems to be positively correlated uh, with returns upon exit. That's what we document in our study. Wonderful to have the, the empirical uh, evidence of that. Um, but when you're having the conversations, do you have any, do, do they give any theories as to why um, buying firms with higher ESG um, variables attached to them or how making ESG transformative steps within an organization that you, that you buy ends up uh, producing higher multiples. Yeah, I mean, back to the original discussion, I'm, I'm not here to uh, defend any practices of the private equities industry that some uh, um, some people in our society might not might not like. Uh, and I think it is fair to say that the business model of private equity is as a prime example of, of in value creation and a capitalist uh, uh, view. Um, so, private equity investors still set out to increase returns. And I think the idea is to incorporate ESG performance as part of the financial uh, value creation uh, process, uh, if you want. And I think this relates very much to the conversation you had with Alex Edmonds, right? Who says ESG should not be um, one part or side strategy, but we should fully embrace it. 
and anything uh, is ESG, if we truly think of it as a long-term value creation aspect, then it will increase uh, returns for the shareholders, the capital invested by shareholders. That's what private equity uh, firms do. That's their daily business. So back to the conversations we had and also a little bit back to the evidence we find and what other papers uh, uh, find. Being sustainable or making portfolio firms become more sustainable can be financially very rewarding. Right, if there are uh, financial outcomes uh, attached to it. Just think about exit strategies. Um, you need to find, as a private equity firms, potential buyers five years, eight years down the road, depending on the holding period. And we, I think we can see in markets that firms that uh, perform better along an ESG dimension that you, uh, that you might have in mind can demand um, a premium. And there's actually other excellent empirical studies out there on private equity showing that private equity does not only have downsides that are in the news and, and being criticized, but also upsides in terms of ESG performance. Uh, we have a study showing that workplace safety goes up after private equity investors come in. Restaurant um, hygiene gets better in the US. Uh, we have a study actually showing that portfolio companies uh, of PE firms become cleaner, reduce uh, emissions at the facility level in the US, but only if there are financial risks to not doing so. So I think that's a great example of how uh, private equity investors, by focusing on returns, can also drive uh, environmental change and ESG performance. Okay, uh, but that would imply that we'd need to have some sort of cost to the environmental, uh, ultimately to the environmental damage. So is that a function of uh, the private equity firms looking a few years down the line and saying a carbon tax will come, we should have a, have a carbon price in our own inter internal accounting or, or, or something else? I mean, I think it is a little bit two-sided. Uh, first, uh, first, I think it's good news for, for regulators because you know that PE-backed portfolio firms will respond particularly strongly to financial incentives stemming from regulation. So if you want to induce green investment by, for example, providing an R&D tax credit, well, you can be sure that private equity companies will pick up this tax credit. They will reduce their corporate income tax payments. That's what we show, by the way, in, uh, in our study. Taxes go down, but in particular, where there are tax credits for additional investment. So that might be good news for the government, knowing that our incentives that we create by regulation will have bite because investors here, private equity investors, focus on financial terms. Um, second, or on the other side, do we need um, uh, regulation? Again, back to the example of exits. Um, if we uh, expect that a whole society and the investor landscape at large values ESG performance as part of the value creation, then we, in a perfect world, we wouldn't need uh, regulation because then private equity investors and managers are incentivized to uh, improve ESG performance of portfolio firms, which will then sell at a much higher price five to eight years um, down the road. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, so again, so we're, we're kind of focusing in on private equity uh, being um, profit-driven organizations and above, above, above all, um, but with almost unintended consequences of being, well, if we're chasing that particular multiple, uh, and, that's, and that we get a higher multiple for being in the sustainable box than the non-sustainable box, well then we, we'll do the sustainable things, we'll do good things, but not for the sake of being good, but for the sake of driving, driving our multiples. Um, do you think it's possible for there to be uh, like a, a really, a truly kind of green private equity, you know, 
firm or a truly green kind of private equity industry? Or will it always be uh, become that type of profit-driven motivation? Well, that's honestly very hard for, for me to answer because I'm not here to speak for, for the industry or particular uh, firm. Uh, what we do know, there are many and many different players uh, out there. Right. Uh, and I, I guess here the difference um, also lies a little bit in cultural backgrounds, geographic uh, uh, backgrounds. Um, there are uh, ESG-focused or green-focused funds uh, of um, private equity firms that have committed on only making specific uh, investments, whereas you still have kind of uh, broader funds or industry-wide funds that probably just invest in the portfolio companies that, that promise um, the better uh, returns, where we would be back to your criticism, if I uh, may say so, that they will only tick the box or, or do certain things if uh, it promises um, some uh, financial returns. We do see also based on our, our research by looking at the disclosures and the websites of private equity firms that more and more firms do appoint uh, also specific executives uh, or, or managers um, to uh, oversee the overall sustainability and any strategy across funds, across the PE firm. Um, so um, these firms, and particularly leading players, do seem to take a more, more holistic uh, approach, probably because the whole um, landscape uh, is changing. And maybe we can talk a little bit about um, the drivers of private equity firms uh, or the motivations behind private equity firms disclosing and talking more about mm -hmm. ESG strategies. No, no, that's a good point. Yes. So, uh, so are we talking kind of, uh, there's mainly push, there's mainly pull. Like, well, what are those drivers you're talking about? You were talking about pull and push factors. Our, in our study, I think we can convince, convincingly document two uh, facts or two drivers uh, of this ESG attention, focus, talk. Um, whatever you want to um, use as, as a framework here. Uh, one is limited partners, investors, those providing ultimately the, the equity capital to private equity firm. We do see that once the limited partners, um, the large institutional investors, become signatories or sign up to the United Nations principle of investments, the chief focus of the PE firms they invest in goes up. So I, I would call this a push factor. It's really the investors um, driving to be PE firms as agents, as then investors into portfolio companies, uh, ESG focus. And second, an interesting regulatory aspect, uh, again, we do find that private equity firms focus more on ESG topics if or when they are more invested in countries worldwide through their portfolio companies, where there is more mandatory ESG disclosure uh, regulation. And we interpret this uh, finding as evidence for, again, a competition uh, for capital. If you as a private equity firm invest uh, in the UK market, where there's a very high standard uh, these days in terms of ESG disclosures for large and, and particularly pu public firms, you probably also want to disclose more about ESG strategies and the, and the ESG focus um, to the world or to your limited uh, partners that might have the option to provide capital to the private equity firm, buying out smaller private companies, or in the first place, invest in public companies in the same country and industry that are very transparent about their um, ESG strategies and their performance. Perfect. Which leads us very neatly onto uh, our next point of uh, discussion, which is uh, tax reform. Like it's clearly a, like it's a super important uh, part of ESG. Um, you know, obviously, you need to be paying um, you know, a, you know, fair and equitable taxes for your for your G. It's a you know, very important part of part of governance. Uh, but also looking at the way the world is and fighting the big issues such as climate change. 
requires state support, and state support comes comes from taxation. So you know, it is it is a very important uh, topic to be to be talking about. We've recently had the OECD um, putting together kind of you know, a two-pillar approach to, uh, to to unifying kind of tax codes globally. I would like to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. I mean, this was I would call it a historic political uh, moment, and it's not only me saying that. Also, Janet Yellen, for example, uh, uh, said that this was truly um, remarkable that more than 100 countries, by now 140 countries, came to an agreement in 2021 to say. We need to fundamentally, not only a little bit, fundamentally change um, the way multinational corporations uh, are taxed. Um, it was about a two-pillar approach. The first pillar, the first idea is to tax multinational companies more or to a greater extent where they generate revenues, where the ultimate consumers are. That's a little bit, I wouldn't say on ice, but on hold for now, because implementing the second part, pillar two, is uh, probably more urgent and complex enough for regulators at the moment. And the second pillar, pillar two, is the so-called 15% global minimum tax rate, which is uh, all over in the news. So the idea here is about this key um, legislative uh, element uh, is that a multinational company should pay at least 15% in effective corporate income tax in each country in which it operates. Meaning if I make 100 British pounds in uh, pre-tax profit in the UK, I should pay at least 15%. Same in Germany, same in some tax haven country, same uh, in the US. And the, uh, the way to implement this is also based, uh, based on a two-tier approach. First is very easy. Each and every country in the world can decide to apply at least a corporate income tax rate of 15% and also enforce this, of course. But we know many countries don't do this. There are um, tax rates below 15%, in particular effective tax rates below 15%. You can have a tax rate of 20%, but grant government subsidies uh, and other types of uh, deductions that lead to a lower effective tax rate. Some tax haven countries decide to not levy a corporate income tax rate. In that case, the idea of this reform is that other countries, typically the country where the headquarters is uh, of, of a multinational firm, can uh, implement a top-up tax and tax the remainder between the effective tax rate in a given country and uh, 15%. So the idea is to level a playing field across multinational companies worldwide. If you want to have the Googles in the mind of that world that have paid an effective tax rate below 15%, uh, and let's go to my home country, um, the German mid-sized manufacturing company, which is also multinational, but paid an effective tax rate of 30, 30%, want to level the playing field here. And also leveling the playing field in terms of tax competition across jurisdictions. Because by implementing this rule, you basically take away the incentive for a given country to lower the corporate income tax rate below 15%. That's the key idea. That's considered as harmful, this race to the bottom. And that's why we want to put a an end to it. Sure, great. And um, well, with any of these big uh, regulatory changes, there'll be winners and losers. Would you like to kind of talk about who's who's likely to be to be on what side? Uh, of course, happy to do so because I've uh, spent the last year or so almost full time figuring out based on investor responses, based on market responses, who the winners and losers are uh, of this reform. Purely financially, from an investor's point of view, in terms of the companies. The losers, maybe that's obvious to, to our audience, seem to be those multinational firms, in particular from the US, that have paid relatively little um, in uh, income taxes um, as of 2021. 
uh, not necessarily uh, um, little in terms of effective tax rate, but in particular those that are exposed to foreign markets, and in particular exposed to foreign markets with low um, tax rates. Companies that have been operating in tax havens or companies that have been uh, operating with lots of assets and cash in, in countries um, like Ireland, uh, where the tax rate is typically relatively low. So these seem to be uh, the losers because we document significant uh, drops in, in shareholder value around the reform announcement and very tight windows and these effects uh, were quite pronounced and uh, long-lasting. So um, this is a clear indication of uh, these companies being expected to pay much higher taxes uh, in the future in the foreseeable future. In terms of countries, we also try to pin down who are the winners and the losers. This is a much more challenging and difficult task, obviously. It's really hard to, to predict. Um, does the US, for example, do the US uh, lose out or gain from this um, reform? Which is why there's a huge debate, quite uh, um, divided, as many things are divided in the US uh, between the uh, two parties in terms of support for this reform. Um, but we took a first step. And uh, we looked at um, credit default swaps of corporate bonds, um, which tell us about the risk that investors um, see in the public finances of a given country. And uh, we did document that um, these swaps increased for tax haven countries uh, and countries with very low um, tax rates around the reform announcement, which is an indication of uh, investors um, seeing a less bright future uh, for the tax haven countries in the world in terms of their public finances, which might be driven by expected reductions in tax revenues. But to the extent these countries today have no tax revenues because there are no tax rates, um, at least investors seem to expect that multinational companies uh, pull out potentially their resources in terms of uh, cash, holding structures and so on um, from these countries. We would like to see much more future research, and we are already on it, um, so uh, our listeners should stay tuned, um, what the potential consequences are for developing countries, uh, what the potential consequences are for tax revenues. Here we obviously have estimates from, from the regulators. So we expect to each year raise an additional 150 billion in corporate income tax revenues. It's, an, it's not huge, it's like uh, roughly 15% of the total tax revenues of a country like uh, Germany, but it's also not small. It's something governments, in particular governments in developing countries, could uh, certainly use. And an amount, maybe even large of that, is expected to be reallocated uh, across countries. And here, um, if Pillar 1 is, is introduced, um, the winners will probably be developing countries with large consumer markets, for example, India, China, some South American uh, countries uh, being among them. Okay, great. In the history of tax reform, uh, no sooner has uh, reform been you know, inked as you've got teams of very smart people looking around trying to find, trying to find ways around it. Um, I guess this may be different this time because it is essentially global. Uh, so there is quite a lot of uh, coordination uh, attached to it. But do you think that this time it is genuinely different? I do think it is uh, generally different with respect to corporate income taxes. And there are other taxes uh, around the world, other financial incentives countries can offer um, to, uh, to companies. But in terms of the effective corporate income taxes paid, I think the 15% effective tax rate that regulators have in mind might really uh, have bite because of this two-tiered system. There's no more incentive uh, for a tax haven country to not impose a corporate income tax rate of 15%. And companies likely see this increase in their tax burden on their corporate uh, income tax. Okay. 
It's really interesting subject in a lot of ways um, in that if you compare to other kind of pillars of the SG, have other part, parts of the whole ESG debate, um, any kind of issues of uh, racism or climates or you know, the kind of those, those, those kind of big issues. Companies have been hammered for it and yes. they've changed their behavior quite quickly. Mm -hmm. But in this whole ta taxation field, um, it's, it hasn't been the same way. Like as, as we talked about earlier, like since the 90s, this has been like, I've been aware of this, this is, as being a big issue. Uh, but for some reason, that companies have just been riding, riding through the storm going, yeah, okay. We're, we're, everybody knows we're paying an effective tax rate of 2%, yeah, whatever. Yes. <laughs> you know, and just, just riding through it. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that taxation is so different to these other areas? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's a fascinating uh, uh, question. I think there are two key reasons. First, maybe that's a quite cheap answer. Taxes, multinational and corporate tax are very complex. Uh, and I think one condition you need to be fulfilled, uh, have fulfilled is that investors or the users of this information understand uh, what's going on, can really assess, is this wrongdoing, not necessarily illegal, but is this bad ESG performance, what we see in the financial reports. It's not necessarily clear um, and far less clear cut than um, an issue of, of racism, inclusion, a gender pay gap, that's, that's very salient. So I think it's quite complex and that was your opening statement, texts are very dry. Not everybody's necessarily interested in corporate taxes relative to issues of racism or climate change. And I get that. The second point uh, is probably the credibility. What do we want in terms of government and society? Um, it's not necessarily clear whether it's a bad um, or unethical thing for a company to pay a corporate tax rate of 10% or less. If there are governments out there, maybe your own country offering tax rebates, um, reduced um, income tax rates for income derived from intellectual property, for example. Maybe the headline rate in your country is 30%, like in Luxembourg, but we know that the effective tax rate is much lower and governments want this to be the case. It's in the law um, that income from certain buckets, if you want, so intellectual property is uh, exempted. Or um, that you can use losses to shield your income from future taxation. That's, um, most people would say that's totally fine, but obviously this leads for a couple of years after, for example, a startup becomes profitable to an effective tax rate of 0% or less. Um, so again, here um, it's, it's important to establish um, credibility. What do we want and what do our rules look like in particular if uh, the intention of governments is to lure in investment away maybe from my neighboring countries. And in, in that case, then uh, it's in the interest of companies and maybe even managers' duty to optimize uh, along this dimension, go into a specific country which drives down the effective tax rate. But it's exactly what government wants us to do mm -hmm. in some cases. Yeah, obviously not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, trying to be simplistic here, but these are the two reasons I see. First, Again, taxes are very complex and not everybody might be interested in, leading to maybe low degrees of backlash, I think that's the way you, you put it, uh, in response to tax avoidance relative to other ESG issues. And second key question is, uh, what do we want? What's our perception of a low uh, effective tax rate if we have rules in place that basically subsidize uh, firms and lead to um, subsidize certain investment, lead to low effective tax rates. Mm, very interesting. Brings us to, to a new point, which is uh, the whole point on uh, taxation of, of carbon. So far, we've had a whole series of, of national, regional, or even kind of you know, blocks of nations uh, getting together. But 
It seems to me, or maybe you'd be kind of comment on it, that this is something that isn't naturally dealt with at a, at a kind of a local or, or national level. It's something that should be dealt with at a, at a more kind of, kind of yes. global level. Um, but yet we're going ahead, I guess, it's because it's the best we can do. We can control what we can control and there isn't consensus yet. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, exactly for, for rules to be implemented, you need to have the jurisdiction Right. And that's typically domestic. Uh, however, problems are very international and, and climate change and pollution is international by definition, obviously. Um, maybe it's even a bit funny to think of the, the process of introducing a carbon tax. What's the problem at hand? We want to reduce pollution into the atmosphere. And we actually don't really care whether um, gases are emitted here or at the other side of the world. However, we implement rules that apply to companies incorporated, for example, or consumers using gas within the borders of our country. It's a problem we face, for sure. Yeah, well, I guess it's, yeah, it's the best we can do <laughs> for now, for now. Um, but you're, you're, you're writing an upcoming paper upon on, uh, the whole issue of uh, carbon leakage, a really interesting subject uh, and something that isn't talked about half enough um, in, in, in the field right now. Could you, could you kind of tell us a little bit of what is carbon leakage and um, what issues it creates and what tools are there to, to try and uh, kind of fix those issues? Yes, uh, of course. I mean, we come again from this big motivation. We want to drive change in the world, climate change. And we already know that's good news to regulators. Corporations are also consumers respond to regulatory incentives. And that's why carbon taxes or trading schemes have been introduced to, to put uh, um, these things under control, incentivize uh, certain behavior, but usually at the domestic level or at the EU level. So an obvious uh, question to look at in our, uh, um, in our opinion was, well, do in particular multinational companies respond in a way that they outsource uh, pollution? Because it would not be illegal at all. There's a big, uh, potentially big finan financial incentive to do so. Uh, and if they do so, we would have an important policy implication, namely that carbon taxes within a given Euro European country may lead to higher tax revenue, that's a good thing, but doesn't really tackle the idea of uh, the path to uh, being on the path to net zero because emissions wouldn't change globally. So to your question, what's the definition of carbon leakage? Well, if we have strict regulation in one country, um, then we might expect that carbon emissions become outsourced to another country, a jurisdiction with laxer or no uh, regulation. That would be uh, carbon leakage. So domestic solutions do not work. And again, there's a strong parallel to my other research on global tax reform. If the overarching goal is to make companies pay a certain minimum amount of an effective tax rate, a domestic rule will not work alone unless there is a global harmonization or a mechanism in place that incentivize the other country to raise more taxes, imply a higher tax rate, or the home country having an option or the opportunity to apply a top-up tax. And that's, I think, where you're, you're heading towards um, the, the latest uh, uh, idea in Europe, what to do about carbon leakage. Yeah, exactly. So the latest um, um, movement in Europe, big block, uh, putting a, a carbon border tax uh, in place. Really interesting step forward. Um, I wonder how you think that that's going to be um, impacting upon you know, other blocks from trading within Europe and also countries within, within Europe. How effective do you think it'll be? And do you think it can be a model for other places? I think it's a 
very big uh, thing that the so-called the, the CBAM uh, obviously and, and certainly a right uh, step in the direction of reducing uh, global emissions. But if you look at the legislative process and how it is phased in, it becomes clear to you that it's an incredibly ambitious task and incredibly um, challenging. So the first uh, phase will be only collecting data, right? We're not um, uh, imposing a so-called import tax on the dirty materials imported from outside the Europe into Europe. First of all, we will be asking importers to collect the data and we're working with disclosures here again. Because one key aspect of mandating additional disclosures or one argument in favor of initial disclosures is generating the data needed for regulators to act on. Right? Because for many things we don't have the data, so it's hard to regulate things. And then we will, after 2030, 32, potentially phase in um, uh, the tax. Um, it probably uh, makes sense to level the playing field and create the incentive or the disincentive to engage in carbon leakage and regulatory uh, arbitrage. Uh, I think it will all be a question uh, of scope. You were asking for potential uh, corporate responses to that. Uh, if only certain industries, certain materials are within the scope uh, of the regulation, you, have an, um, you don't have a level playing field. Uh, and you might change operations uh, uh, around uh, these dimensions potentially. I'm kind of getting a little bit of kind of hesitation from you. Do you, do you think that it was well designed, well put together, or or not? I, I mean, I think it would be unfair unfair to to judge uh, at at this point. It's probably. I mean, there are a lot of interest groups out there probably saying that's poorly designed, it's too slow, um, it's not enough, Well, but it's very hard uh, to do. And I think the way I see it, it's a bit of a learning by doing approach that's being implemented by um, collecting information first, then phasing in uh, the import tariff, uh, potentially subject to changes in the exact rule design. I think that's fair because uh, we have not much experience uh, uh, with this and uh, we need to collect data and, and gather experience, uh, but we all know uh, time is running out. So, so if anything, I think we should probably be, be quicker, but um, it would be unfair not to recognize how, how ambitious and challenging that is. But if it works, that was your other question, uh, it could certainly be a, a blueprint for, for other markets too. Okay. And do you think other markets are actively looking at this as a, in the same way as um, the Inflation Reduction Act has prompted reactions from, from around the world who, who don't want to be left behind in that? Do you think that other, other geographies are looking at something similar to the, to the cross-border scheme? I, I think there are uh, these uh, discussions out there, political development, but even absent direct copies, let's say, of, of such an European trading um, a scheme, for example, or then the, the, the border adjustment tax. Um, the uh, interesting thing or institutional uh, aspect uh, about this mechanism here is that it incentivizes regulators and other parts of the world to already change their policies. Because one way to have companies not being hurt um, by such an import tariff would be to incentivize greener investment and greener technologies in your country that can then be so the products can be imported for free, if you want so, uh, in, uh, into Europe. So this policy might uh, already uh, trigger regulations in other markets not being part of the scheme, implementing rules uh, that, that foster maybe the, the energy transition, in particular in the corporate sector. Great. Um, which I guess we're kind of going back to the start and kind of where we come from here is we've got a big, a big question and big difficulties uh, in trying to get 
truly global action, uh, coordinated action uh, on climate change. And there's lot, lots of kind of individual kind of countries do, doing their own thing, but there's very little kind of global coordination as there was uh, was in the the, t- the tax. But the likes of this uh, cross-border, you know, yeah. car- carbon mechanism and uh, the yeah, the America's Inflation Reduction Act um, seems to have prompted kind of competition uh, exactly. amongst amongst kind of you know con- countries and blocks. To what extent do you think that that level of you kind know, of, of healthy positive comp- competition uh, between between con- countries and blocks, rather than the race to the bottom, as as was the case with taxation until recently, uh, can race to the top for? Um, kind of green initiatives. Um, can competition on those issues uh, compensate for lack of global coordination? That's we're not seeing. Again, uh, tough, uh, tough question uh, to answer. Um, probably, maybe it's unprecedented. That's uh, that's for sure. Um, but for um, these international aspects to to really work, I think at a minimum we need the big players to create rules that incentivize other players to play along if you want. So, and uh, uh, the border adjustment mechanism by the EU, um, Inflation Reduction Act and the US have these elements. Um, however, uh, we also need to be aware of that these big players have the financial means, the hosting the big companies uh, at home um, to uh, benefit from these rules. And um, I think it's um, important to consider countries and, and economies not actively participating uh, in this process, what the repercussions uh, for them are, both in terms of energy transition, tax revenues and the like. Because in terms of the the global tax reform, there are developing uh, countries opposing uh, the regime. The reasons here are that they have domestic rules in place that help raising tax revenues for multinationals, but they are asked to abandon these strategies, these domestic rules. So it's not clear for the developing countries whether they, at the end of the day, really benefit from the global tax uh, reform. And in terms of um, climate policy, um, the same. I think the discussion is out about the measurement of of GDP. Should there be a a carbon or climate-adjusted GDP? What about uh, countries hosting the world's largest rainforest? What prevents them from you know, uh, cutting down uh, the trees, how are they getting compensated? These are typically the countries not participating uh, in these uh, in these regulations uh, in, in, in the legislative processes in, in Europe or the US. Mm. And one last question for me, because um, a lot of that, that answer seemed to be around the kind of the imperfections in information and how difficult it was to be compared, like it's easy if you're on a corporate tax rate because there's there's like a dollar and cents, exactly. you're, you're, you're in cents amount. But this is all about um, you know differences in like, how do you value the biodiversity of a rainforest in Brazil versus um, you know a, a coal plant in, in England? Like it's, it's, it's one of these, these, like how do you trade, the, do you trade these things up? What kind of final argument would you make what people should pay attention to the tools of transparency and disclosure in, in the climate fight? I think it can not be stressed enough that it is a very uh, powerful, uh, powerful tool we have along two dimensions. First, generating data we need. I think there's a lot of data out there hidden, um, maybe within uh, um, multinational firms uh, operating businesses that can be uh, disclosed and then used. And second, it can uh, drive behavior because once we disclose um, 
certain information market forces can come into play and maybe drive uh, climate change. And another um, aspect uh, I wanted to stress is probably research, uh, both applied in, uh, research and empirical and maybe even theoretical research. There's a lot out there, excellent work uh, by scholars across fields um, that we can uh, uh, all learn from. And for example, uh, apply that to measuring biodiversity emissions trading off, normalizing maybe uh, certain things to given units, depending on how we uh, value them, um, and coming up with maybe a climate-adjusted um, GDP uh, metric that really helps addressing uh, the big um, questions out there. So I would say we have the tools, we have the bright minds uh, to address them, but again, it's a very complex, uh, very, very complex and, and challenging uh, issue, and we need to come together and, and sit probably on the on the table to find the solution. Fantastic. As with so much in this discussion, we have the tools, we have the bright minds, and we just need to be cooperating, coordinating, and try and find the solutions. But, Professor Marcel, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thanks again. Thank you very much for joining us on that conversation. We hope that you enjoyed it. Hope that you uh, learned something. Uh, if you did enjoy it, please feel free to leave a five-star review and to subscribe to any of our channels and we'll be sure to keep you updated on future productions. This series is produced by United Renewables in collaboration with the London Business School Alumni Energy Club. These are conversations that you just can't afford to miss.